0: Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade. A podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny, all that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade, or the pot and poisoner, curious social history or the great swan mystery of 1935 will follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. It's the evening of the 18th of September, 1945. In a dark wood, a young woman is running. Running as best she can over the uneven ground, a torch beam judders in front of her, sending splinters of light into the darkness. Tree trunks, branches and ferns flicker with flashlight as she passes. We do not know her name, but I am going to call her Betty and Elizabeth after the then-Princess Elizabeth, who repaired and drove ambulances in the Second World War. Our Betty is part of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force crew, part of an ambulance team who reported to a plane crash on the edge of Potton Wood earlier that afternoon. Three airmen were rescued from the crash, and sadly, three bodies were also recovered. So why is Betty back in the woods, in the dark, and searching. After the initial rescue of the aircrew from the burning plane, the survivors were taken by ambulance back to Thamesford Hospital, eight or so miles away to the north of the town of Sandy. Once there, tentative questions were asked of the injured and the injured began to ask their own questions. What happened in that plane? Why did it crash? Who had survived? Which of their friends hadn't? And so nearly four hours after the crash happened, it became clear that one of the aircrew was unaccounted for. Flight officer Noel Gilmore of the Royal Australian Air Force was still somewhere in those woods. Betty, still on shift and familiar with the crash site from that afternoon, drove back with her volunteers and medics to search for Gilmore. They must have thought they were searching for a body, but hoped to find a survivor. It's a lonely spot on a gentle sloping ridge. By 8pm, it's pitch dark, something they all got used to during the war, during the blackouts, but unnerving nonetheless amongst all those trees. The initial search of the crash site shows no sign of Flight Officer Gilmore. Betty is one of the party fanning out from the crash site searching further, deeper into the woods. All thoughts of how eerie it is to be in a dark wood at night are crunched down inside her by the fear for Noel Gilmore and her hope to find him alive. The smell of burning wood and aircraft fuel is thick around her. She can hear her colleagues calling in the distance. Occasionally she catches the flash of another's torch illuminating a twisty tree branch or mossy trunk to her side. The search seems impossible then she hears it. At first, it's a yelp, maybe a fox, she thinks, but then it comes again, louder, more insistent. It's a bark, a dog, the yapping bark of a small dog, a puppy even, and she stops still to listen. It could be a local dog being walked through the woods, but unlikely at this hour. And none of the ambulance crew nor volunteers brought a dog with them. Then she remembers overhearing one of the injured air crew on learning of the death of the pilot, McNulty. He asked in a trembling voice if anyone had seen Bitzer, McNulty's puppy. She thought the man must have been confused by the pain medication he was on, but now she can clearly hear a dog barking, and it sounds like a puppy. Could it be? Could it be Bitzer? Betty begins to move towards the sound of the dog. She calls out to her colleagues. There's a dog barking. Listen, listen for the dog barking. There was a dog on the plane. Now, she is not the only one moving with added purpose through that undergrowth. She is swift as she can be, alert for ditches that crisscross the woods, ready to trip her with one misstep. She calls out. Hey, hey, hello. I'm coming. Please call out if you hear me. She listens. The dog yelps stop for a moment, and then a weak shout joins the barking. I'm here, here, I'm here with the dog. And carefully moving towards the shouts and the barks, she finds them. Her torch beam sweeps across a young man with fair hair and a long face. He winces as the torch beam lands on him, but gives her a lopsided grin. He's lying against a tree and sitting between his legs is a tiny black Scottish terrier now yapping and wagging its tail as if to say, What took you so long? Soon the area is full of people, a medic assesses Noel's injuries and they work out how best to remove him from the woods to the ambulance. He's suffering with broken ribs, a concussion, burns, bruises and some nasty cuts. Throughout all of this, the little puppy stays by his side. Betty bends down to check on the little dog, which seems to have escaped the crash remarkably unscathed. He lets her inspect him, and as they prepare to make their way back to the ambulance, the little hero pup lets Betty take him in her arms and carry him out of the woodland. The story goes that she adopted Bitsa and he lived out the rest of his life happily with Betty. He quite possibly saved the life of Flight Officer Noel Gilmore by alerting the rescuers to where they were. Gilmore himself had no memory of the accident, nor how he managed to get so far away from the crash site, nor why Bitzer chose to stay with him, even whilst he was unconscious, and there were others in the woods that afternoon who could have taken Bitzer to safety. But that's not the end of this story, because ever since that fateful crash, and we'll learn more about it later. There have been reports of strange happenings in and around these woods. Strange lights in the sky were reported just eight years after the crash, and other tales involve phantom smells and hearing a ghostly dog barking deep in the trees late into the night, when no actual dog can be found. Could it be the ghost of Bitsa, the brave hero pup? Or a strange time slip phenomena? or just our folk memory of the crash playing on people's minds. We'll explore all of these theories later in the show. Today, we're going deep into the woods, amongst the trees, beneath the spreading branches, through dappled shade and over mossy banks. We're going to visit ancient forest that still clings to the gentle slopes of the Greensand Ridge, where legends old and new spread like lichen, twisting through the trees like ivy. There'll be bluebells and birdsong, and there'll also be tragedy. Sadness, mysterious lights, phantoms playing with our senses, possible time slips, politics, fruit production, and outlandish theories as we explore What's Haunting Potten Woods. Hello, I'm Nat Doig and welcome to Weird in the Wade, episode three, What's Haunting Potton Woods. A friend once asked me if I had to make the impossible choice between the two, ocean or forest, what would I choose? The rules were that I'd never visit again the one I rejected. I chose the forest because although I love the ocean, I said I could hear the sea in the wind through the trees. I grew up surrounded by trees. Until I was 18 months, we lived in a caravan in a clearing in the woods, hugged by the Chiltern Hills, looking up at the favourite picnic spot of the Rothschilds family. My parents would watch deer and foxes on our doorstep, and at night the heavy footsteps of badgers would tread outside the caravan. And before you think this sounds idyllic, my mum recently reminded me that they only had a sink to wash in and a chemical toilet. But even when we moved to a house, um, an Air Force quarter, we had a spinny behind us. At night I could still hear the ocean in the trees, the dark restless waves that rocked me to sleep. The owl, the fox, the deer were still just the other side of our garden gate. I was seven when we moved away to Bedfordshire, where trees are definitely in shorter supply, especially on our side of the county facing Cambridgeshire and the flat farmers' fields that stretch on forever. But there are woods, and today we will visit them. Potton Woods isn't in Potton at all, it's just on the western edge of. Cocaine Hatley, a hamlet, which literally is built on a road to nowhere. You can drive into Cocaine Hatley, but your only way out is the way you came in. It's about six miles away from Biggleswade. For whatever reason, these woods are called Potton Woods, and at one time, they were part of the great Amptill forest, which sprawled across much of Bedfordshire. Pockets still remain near to Amptill and here at Potton Woods. Other newer woodland has been planted in the ancient forest place around the old monastery villages of Old Warden and Chicksands. Over at Ampthill, there are associations with Henry VIII and his first wife Catherine of Aragon but at Potton Woods there doesn't seem to be any royal connections. I can't find any spooky stories connected with the area reported before the 1950s, though there were definitely some interesting ones. Long John Silver and the uh, inspiration for Peter Pan's Wendy are buried in the graveyard at Cocaine Hatley, right next to the woods. But more on that in a bonus episode. It seems that the crash of the Liberator plane just after the Second World War is what sparks the strange stories. The Liberator was the name given to the B-24 bomber by the RAF and adopted by the Americans later. It was big, with four engines, though it could take off with just three. It could fly for 3,000 miles and was the first big bomber-sized plane to regularly make that journey across the Atlantic to the UK in one go. It had a top speed of 300 miles an hour. Now I'm no expert on World War II planes or planes in general even though I grew up on Air Force camps and visited the annual air shows from a tiny age so I've used for this episode Graham Haig's brilliant account of this accident from his website grahamhague.com and links as always are in the show transcript and notes over on weirdinthewade.blog. I've also used information from the National Archives who incidentally also reference Graham's brilliant work. It is a really sad story, although ultimately for some of the crew and bits of the pup, there is a positive ending. On the 18th of September, 1945, just a month after the end of the Second World War, with victory over Japan and four months after victory in Europe, there was still a lot of war-associated work to do not least liberating the former prisoners of war from Japan and returning troops home to the UK, the Commonwealth and America. It was on the 18th of September that a training flight for the new Liberator KN736 plane took off from RAF Bassingbourne in Hertfordshire. The Liberator plane in question had only undertaken its delivery flight from the US to the UK and so this was the first time it was going to be flown in an exercise. The point of the training flight was for the crew to practice emergency engine failure conditions, so taking off and landing with only three engines functioning, and then doing the same with only two engines in use. The test flights had been delayed by bad weather for several days. In fact, the September of 1945 was remarked as being one of the dullest on record by the Met Office. The crew of the aircraft were made up of a mix of Royal Australian Air Force and Royal Air Force crew, who were the captain, Flight Lieutenant Pat McNulty, DFC, Royal Australian Air Force. In the photo that I have seen of him, he has fair hair and a childlike infectious smile, like he's genuinely laughing at a joke. Pilot instructor was Flight Lieutenant John Spiller, DFC, Royal Air Force. He was aged 28, dark and handsome, with large kind eyes and a shy smile. The co-pilot was Flying Officer Frank Doak, Royal Australian Air Force. In his photograph, he has quite a penetrating stare, like he's thinking hard on a problem. Flying Officer Noel P. Gilmore, Royal Australian Air Force, who we met earlier being rescued in the wood, had fair hair with a lopsided cheeky smile in his photo. He's next to McNulty and maybe they have both just shared a joke as they both look very happy and a little mischievous. Flight Engineer was Flight Sergeant Roy Turner of the RAF. In his photo, he has dark curly hair and a shy smile, like he's remembering something that he's not quite ready to share. He's also photographed with bits of the dog, smiling down at him kindly. Instructing Flight Engineer was Flight Sergeant Ray V. Carling, RAF. In Ray's photograph, he looks earnest and thoughtful, There's a stray cowlick of hair sticking out at the side of his head, and I can imagine his mum sticking it down with warm water when he was a boy. And finally, the wireless operator was S.O. Jim Potter of the Royal Australian Air Force. He had fair hair, and in his photograph, he's standing straight and tall, he's smiling broadly, and he looks completely dependable. The captain, McNulty, was described as a veteran of many operational flights in a similar Halifax plane, and Flight Lieutenant John Spiller of 59 Squadron RAF Waterbeach was instructing. After a successful takeoff and flight over the East Anglian countryside, John Spiller made the decision to practice with two engines whilst they were still on this flight. It's speculated that they were in a great deal of pressure to get these tests done because of the previous bad weather hindering the schedule, and the training session that day was running late as well. They needed pilots and crew ready to fly those huge planes out to the east to bring back their comrades. So John made what must have seemed like a sensible decision to not land the plane straight away after testing with three engines, but to move straight on to the testing with two. At first, the shutting down of the engines went well. But as Graham explains, The effort to maintain straight flight required full left rudder. The aeroplane was losing altitude gradually, And the exercise had started at only 1200 feet. Any attempt to make a turn to the right would have immediately spun the Liberator into the ground and the crew discovered there to be insufficient control input remaining to achieve a left turn. Unable to main altitude at such a low level, the pilot was flying the plane in an exceptionally risky condition at the limit of control and as KN 736 headed northwest The land was gently rising towards the green sand ridge at Potton before very long it became essential to restart at least one of the engines. This was a critical time as the propeller blades had first to be set to a fine pitch and allowed to windmill to generate the momentum that a starter motor on the ground would have provided. This naturally added drag and slowed the plane significantly at a time when it needed all the speed it could get. The crew performed the task required, but the engine stubbornly refused to restart and the plane began to move rapidly, losing speed and altitude. Unable to turn and with the ground rising to meet them, the crew was suddenly in deeply serious trouble, with very little time left to sort it out. They hurriedly unfeathered the inner starboard engine Again, slowing the plane yet more, but all attempts to restart the engine also failed and fairly quickly, the starboard wing stalled. KN 736 went into a dive and crashed into the southern boundary of Pottonwood. The plane broke into sections and burst into flames. Two local men, Mr Sam Bonnet and Mr C Dennis, provided aid at the scene of the crash In fact, Flying Officer Frank Doak remembers them bravely entering the burning plane to pull out the remaining crew. Soon residents from nearby Cocaine Hatley Farms also came to provide help. Sadly, the Captain Pat McNulty and the instructor John Spiller, along with Warrant Officer Jim Potter, were killed outright in the crash. There was nothing the locals could do for them once they were pulled from the burning wreckage. Flight Sergeant Roy Turner survived the initial crash, and although he was rescued from the plane by the brave Bonnet and Dennis, his injuries and burns were too great, and he died at the military hospital at Tempsford at 23.30 hours that night. Two of the other crew were flung from the plane of the crash and were helped at the scene. Flying officer Frank Doak was the only survivor to be classed as walking wounded, but he was still seriously hurt. Flight Sergeant Ray Carling was very seriously injured too. Initially, there was no sign at the crash scene of Section Officer Noel Gilmore from the Royal Australian Air Force, and as we discussed at the start of the show, he wasn't found until many hours later. Once rescuers returned in the dark to search for him, he was located thanks to the barking of the little Scotty dog, Bitsa, who refused to leave his side. Gilmore is reported to have stated the following. I heard a loud bang and knew nothing more until I awoke minutes later rather confused but realising unbelievably I was still alive. I remember blindly tearing my way through hot wreckage, burning my hands in the process. He then crawled away from the scene and passed out. It is thought that little bits of the dog stayed with his unconscious body guarding over him It's quite amazing to think how he managed to crawl with his injuries, including badly burnt hands, broken ribs and a concussion, to where he was found, because he was deep into the woods. The crash and loss of life must have been especially horrific, it coming so soon after the war had ended, when families must have felt that the danger was over and they'd soon be returned with their loved ones. Spiller, aged only 28, left behind a wife and two children, and it's thanks to his children's effort to preserve his memory that we have a lot of information about the crash and the lives of the crew involved. Again, in the show transcript and notes on the blog, I've shared a link to the pictures and information that they shared on Flickr. If you want to know more about the crash and its possible causes, then there will be links in the show notes where you can read much more. There's also a picture of the memorial for the crew. It's not surprising that such a tragic and dramatic incident lived long in local people's memories, though throughout the war there were other dramatic crashes not too far from this one. In the same year, two planes crashed in the middle of the town of Sandy. The details of the accident were kept secret for many years as it involved US Air Force and RAF planes colliding, a kind of friendly fire situation which was not good for publicity. There was also extremely graphic eyewitness accounts from local children who witnessed the incident. Yet this accident doesn't seem to have ignited the same level of myth and legend as the Potton Wood one has. This is likely to be for several reasons. The fact that Potton Woods Liberator crash happened in such a lonely location on the edge of an ancient wood lends itself to stories of the uncanny. The story of bits of the dog waiting with the unconscious Gilmore and then helping rescuers locate them both is just a wonderful story in itself. And also often when there aren't hundreds of witnesses and where reports of the accident are more scarce, it provides room for other associated stories to grow and take root. But it seems at least at first the strange happenings around the wood were not linked back to the crash at all. Just 8 years after the crash on Tuesday the 1st of December 1953 a strange flying object is witnessed by a Mr W Brett and his wife over Potton Wood. The story reported in the local newspaper is that Mr Brett and his wife saw a strange bulbous cigar-shaped craft which he describes quite charmingly as a fierce blue colour flying above Potton Woods. Brett says the object flew six or seven times faster than an aeroplane and was at about 10,000 feet, so relatively low in comparison to a modern jumbo jet. As well as being a fierce blue colour, the object had sparks flying off it. Brett says he thinks it was a flying saucer and that it came from the southwest. Once it had moved over the woods and was above Church Farm, Brett says that it split in two and then disappeared. He says there was no debris or parts appearing to fall from it. Now, Biggleswade is about five miles southwest of Pottenwood and beyond Biggleswade another six miles to the southwest is the US Air Force base of Chicksands, mentioned in the last episode. And those of you who listened to that episode may remember the significance of the date, the 1st of December. Because in 1956 and 1957, There were UFO sightings just south of Biggleswade on December the 1st. So we can now add the 1st of December 1953 to the list of UFO sightings on that date during the 50s. No mention is made of the Liberator crash in the newspaper report about the UFO, it just focuses on the flying saucer sighting and as we found out last time they were growing considerably during the 1950s flying saucer fever was sweeping the nation. I will revisit the UFO sightings in a future episode and try to find out if there are any others at this time that happened to occur on the 1st of December. I couldn't find any further unusual phenomena reported at Pottonwood until we get to the 2000s and 2010s. I first read about the Liberator crash and the spooky phenomena at Potten Woods from a lovely blog entry by author Paul Jamieson in 2018, and I'm really pleased to say that Paul agreed to speak with me and be interviewed for the podcast. I met with him on a slightly damp and cool morning in early June. We sat in Biggleswade Market Square for the interview, so you may hear some background noise, but hopefully that will just give a flavour of Biggleswade to the recording. Paul looks like a modern day Gandalf with long white hair tied back in a ponytail, a white beard and kind eyes behind dark framed glasses. Here's what he told me about his experience in Potton Woods. I asked Paul if he was the type of chap who had unusual or uncanny experiences often.
1: It's the only place I've had this sort of experience. uh, I used to go walking in lots of different woods around the area, Um, Sheepsbridge wood, Pegnut up wood, sandy hills where the Roman forts are and all that sort of stuff and they're thick woodland and I've had no a, a similar experience, it's just in this one little corner of woodland um, and everyone I've, I've spoken to a few friends who've been there since, they've all said the same thing, it feels like there's something there, it feels different. The first time I went to Pottonwood, Wood I didn't actually know about the crash, I'd actually been there before with a walk for the dogs and I'd smelt smoke, really strong scent of smoke. Um, but there was no fire, there was no one there, there's nothing. Um, but I just, so I just chalked that down to a, a rather strange experience and thought, you know, I thought that was very strange and there must be a, wood, a fire deeper in the woods perhaps.
0: I then asked Paul when he first found out about the Liberator crash.
1: When I went to Cock and Hatley, the church in Cock and Hatley, and my daughter and I were doing photography and the church is absolutely beautiful, so it's a great scene. And while we were there we discovered the graves of um, Peter Pans Mary and Long John Silver or well, the inspiration for those characters. And at the same time we discovered this small little memorial that said there was a crash in Potton Wood. Now that led us on to realise that the wood behind the church or facing the church was Potton Wood. And so from there we went and uh, looked more into the crash and looked more into the wood itself.
0: I asked Paul if he could explain what his experiences there have been like.
1: But later then, when we found out about the crash and went back, we'd realised there'd actually been experiences there, paranormal experiences there. So when we went back, I wasn't really expecting anything to happen, but I smelt that scent of smoke again, with my daughter this time, so we both smelt it. And it's incredibly strong, and we actually found the crash site. Whilst at the crash site we found some artifacts which we left there but the big bolts obviously not from anything from a big machine of some sort which probably the crash and um, yeah that's how we sort of like started looking more into it and find out about the pilots and 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 what happened there for me I've had a couple of experiences the smokes happened twice I think or maybe three times the smoke with the including the first one twice while I was aware of there actually being the site The other thing that's happened was when my daughter and i were looking at the artifacts that we found i heard someone cough behind me um, a very polite cough um, twice which was quite strange because it was close enough for me to turn around and think i would actually see a person and there was no one there um, which was quite strange and the other thing that's happened which has happened once i think is i've been walking along the path where the crash site is and the planes come in really low like massive. So low, it's caused me to duck um, as though it's going to come into the trees. Um, and then, <laughs> when you when you stand back upright, you realise there is no plane. There's nothing. Wow. So those are the, those are the the experiences I've had whilst in that little corner of woodland. Wow. There's definitely something strange about that part of the woodland. It's it's um, it's not dark. That's that that would be the wrong word. Um. It's close, I think that's that's the word I'd use. It feels close, um, like the trees feel close to you. The Even though it's not, it's actually quite a, a I mean, it, it's a thick woodland, but in that part of the wood, there's there's quite a lot of open space, but it feels closer than it should do. Mm. And um, when I'm walking along the path, and I've had this experience a number of times, I feel like I'm being watched. That's the only thing I can say. It feels like there's someone behind me, walking behind me. Um, And whenever you turn, of course, there's nothing there. So I mean, it's a it's a woodland that not many people go to because it's um, off the beaten track.
0: And Potton Wood really is off the beaten track. In all the time that we've lived in Bickleswade, there hasn't always been a bus running to Cocaine Hatley, but there is now. So in April, I took advantage of it. Bus pass in hand, flask of tea, and a sausage roll packed. I made my way early in the morning on the rickety white bus to the little wooden bus stop at the crossroads at Cocaine Hatley. It's then a short walk past the church and up an apple tree lined farm lane to the woods. I was worried about it being so lonely but there were workmen fixing something at the church and not long into my walk past the apple trees I met a friendly dog walker. This made me feel a little less anxious. Obviously I was going on to this walk knowing what others had reported knowing about the plane crash, the burning smell, having read Paul's blog post, and some of the information on Luton Paranormal's website. We'll come back to that later. Now, as I've said before in previous episodes, I'm not a paranormal investigator. I don't claim to have any psychic abilities or unusual sensitivities. Neither am I well placed as a skeptic to debunk theories. I have an open mind and I waver between holding on to rational explanations and wanting there to be something mysterious and otherworldly as well. Sometimes I don't mind the mystery. The not knowing is rewarding in a different way. I have a very vivid imagination and I love solving puzzles though currently not the ones I'm having to solve in Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. I'm suspicious of anyone who says that they have all the answers. For me doubt and curiosity are your greatest allies in life along with common sense and kindness. So it was with buckets of curiosity, sloshing with doubt that I'd find anything in the woods other than trees and carrying a large amount of hope in my heart that I entered the woods. And throughout this section of the podcast, I'm going to play for you some of the recordings I made whilst in Potton Woods as we explore what I found there. So this is Nat Doig for Weird in the Wade. I'm recording this live. It's the 26th of April, 2023. And I am in Potton Woods. Hopefully you can hear some of the birds singing. I am surrounded by bluebells. You can smell the bluebells on the air, it is gorgeous. And I'm in search of a World War II aeroplane crash site. The only strange thing that I can report is that on my way here I could smell burning. It was only at one spot, it wasn't where the crash site was, it's a bit before the crash site and I'm guessing the farmers might just have a bonfire. but. It was strange that I could suddenly smell burning and then it went away. So anyway, that's uh, that's it for me now, but I will update later. I recorded that once I had walked along the southern edge of the wood. So here's a little information about the layout of the woodland, the crash site and surrounding area. In the show notes, there are links to maps too. The wood is an oblong shape. You generally approach it from the south either to its southwest corner by a water tower or the route I took, its southeast corner by the church. The crash site is on the southwest edge of the woodland. There is a path which runs from the southeast corner all along the southern edge of the wood to the main gate at the southwest corner by the edge of the water tower. Directly to the south of the wood are farmers' fields stretching down to a road which runs parallel to the southern edge of the wood, going to the east to cocaine Hatley and to the west to Potton. The edge of the wood is elevated, and you get a good view to the south across the farmland of Bedfordshire. We can see the Potton Wood water tower from our bedroom window at home, as it is unusually elevated for Bedfordshire, being on that far edge of the Greensand Ridge. I first smelt smoke as I made my way along that path which follows the edge of the wood to the south. I made a screenshot on my ordnance survey app GPS marker, and it shows where I was, and that I was still some way away from the crash site. Up until that point, the wood had smelt of bluebells, green and growing things, and the not unpleasant smell of dead wood and rotting wood. It was also quite muddy in places, and it's that thick, black, clay mud of the area, and it has a very distinct smell to it. As I walked, the strip of trees between me and the fields to the south often thinned out enough so that I could see across those fields. There are pictures on the blog. When I smelt smoke, it was pungent, strong, and definitely coming off the fields. The wind was in a southwesterly direction that day, and although the breeze was constantly gusting, that scent of smoke was strong at only one point as I walked along that path towards the southwest water tower corner. It definitely wasn't coming from the crash site so it seemed natural to assume it was a bonfire in the fields. But I could see no sign of workers in those fields. And just after recording that audio, I walked to the entrance of the woods by the water tower and used my camera long lens to scour the fields and surrounding area for smoke or signs of people, and I found none. There were no houses nearby with chimneys smoking either. To be honest, there's no houses nearby. The woods themselves along that southern path had a beautiful atmosphere, peaceful, lots of young trees nestled amongst a few older ones, something special like the woodland in the Shire in Lord of the Rings. I made my way back along the southern path until I found a ditch and a track leading over it towards where the crash site is indicated on the map. It's the kind of track made by animals or the occasional dog walker, just discernible through last year's dead leaves and the spring shoots of green popping up. It led away from the ditch deeper into the woods and straight through some bluebells. I followed the path to the edge of the bluebells but then could go no further without damaging them. So had to give up finding the crash site that day. And as I explained in a recording I made standing on the edge of those bluebells, there is another reason. not go any further today Uh, there is a very very unstable dead tree that is really creaking and it sounds like it's likely to fall over and topple uh any minute and obviously i don't want to be underneath that tree (laughs) and it falls over Um, there it goes creaking again it does lend a very eerie kind of atmosphere to this area but I'll be honest with you it is one of the most peaceful and tranquil spots I've been in locally in a very very long time it feels much um, much more secluded and tranquil than some of the other woodland around here Um, obviously it's beautiful to see it with all the bluebells and the celandines out um, looking absolutely gorgeous in the sunshine. It is a little chilly today. After tracing my steps back towards where I'd entered the woods I again smelt burning. Not at the exact spot I'd been before but not far from it. I again searched through the gaps in the trees to try and locate the source of fire but found none. I decided to explore further into the woods through the main path that cuts straight through the woodland in a broadly northerly direction. It's a wide grass-covered path, lined with telegraph poles with no telegraph wires attached. It reminded me of the wide grass path running through Hagwood in Armthorpe, where I used to live. That path once held a railway line taking coal away from the pit. But I can't imagine there was ever a railway line leading through these woods. But the path is clearly wide enough for vehicles to have driven along at one time. There was also, at a crossroads in the middle of the wood, A strange ladder and viewing platform with a sign warning you to not climb it. Speculation on Twitter when I shared a photo was that it could be used for hunting, but the hope was that it was for scientific study or photography of an area blocked off to the public by bushes. I didn't like this part of the wood as much as the path through the southern edge as I explain here. This actually doesn't feel as tranquil or cosy as the bit did where I was walking which is near the crash site and I'm not really sure why but here I feel a lot more kind of on edge as if I'm being watched by little creatures in the wood Um, and maybe I am maybe there are more maybe there's some deer nearby or something. Even though it didn't feel as cosy in this part of the woods it felt like I'd left the hobbits in the Shire behind and was now in a different kind of wood, something more influenced by humans. It was the area of the wood which lent itself to sitting down and having a picnic. So I found somewhere to rest and opened up my flask of tea. So I just smelt burning again. I'm sitting on the main path, kind of almost in the center of the woods, not quite. And I was eating my lunch, just a sausage roll and some tea. suddenly really strongly i could smell the burning again and it's definitely on the breeze which is coming from the direction of the crash site where i was previously but it comes and goes it comes and it's really strong like there must be a fire in the woods and then you can't smell it at all and yet the breeze is there and and quite strong in your face and you're kind of thinking why can't I smell the the fire. So um, I will investigate when I get out of the woods I'm going to go and have a look around maybe the chaps who were fixing the church have got a fire going. Maybe somewhere in the farmer's field down near towards the water tower. I will see if I can locate an actual fire but otherwise yeah intermittently throughout the woods. I have been able to smell burning. Um, so, anyway, I'm just going to walk. I'm heading back now um, and I'm going to go and investigate, like I say, outside of the woods because there's clearly nothing burning inside the woods. It's something outside, if it is something real that I can smell that's been lit outside the woods. As mentioned earlier, I did not find any source of fire or burning. I was actually quite surprised and taken aback by how strong the smell of burning was. It was so strong and very much a smell of burning wood. It smelt like old-fashioned bonfires from my childhood or like an apple loft I stayed in on holiday once which had a wood-burning stove but also just smelt of apple wood in general. The fact that it wasn't constant but the breeze was that day also seemed a little strange. If it had been just once that I'd smelt it or if it had been pretty constant that would have been easier to explain. When I returned to the church the workmen were gone and there was no sign of any fires there or where you would have lit one. I couldn't see anything in the fields or the farmhouse which would have been a likely culprit but that was to the north of the woods and the wind which had blown the smoke my way was definitely southerly. It didn't smell like the kind of fire you'd associate with a plane crash. There was no smell of fuel or burning rubber or other man-made materials. It simply smelt like wood burning. When I was in the center of the wood, at that point, it smelt like the very trees around me were on fire. That was nowhere near the crash site. I'll come back to the burning in a moment. So in summary, I found most of the woodland utterly charming. I felt like a hobbit on a lovely adventure. Smells of burning aside, on the southern stretch of the wood, the only area that felt a little strange was where that eerie creaking tree groaned. But I think my feeling of unease there can be explained by the sound of the tree's creepy creaks, and not wanting to be crushed by a giant dead tree toppling on me. I sat on a log for a while not far from the creaky tree and I drank tea and ate some breakfast. It was magical. A couple of dog walkers came by and we chatted perfectly ordinary. I heard an old-fashioned airplane at one point, but it was a very real vintage plane as it flew overhead. We get plenty of them, with Shuttleworth Collection being close by. The central part of the wood, with the bizarre ladder, possible hunting lookout thing, and telegraph poles with nothing to telegraph, did feel a bit strange. It did not feel like I was alone there. But that could easily be down to deer being close by, I suppose. I think in that area it was the man-made encroachment onto the beautiful woodland that created some of the unease. I returned home feeling refreshed and excited to find out more about the woodland and the history of Cocaine Hatley, but what I stumbled across in my next set of research really made me stop and think. It was one of those, the hairs on the back of your neck standing on end moments, because I found some evidence about another fire near Potton Woods. In fact, a man-made fire 50 years ago, a fire that has nothing to do with plane crashes, but it was a blaze that destroyed over a million trees. Before we get to the fire, I need to tell you a little bit about the apple orchards of Cocaine Hatley. It seems that there'd been small-scale apple orchards in the area for quite some time, but nothing big or commercial until the 1920s when Alexander Whitehead set up an apple-growing concern called Copo, Cox's Orange Pippin Orchards. Whitehead seems to have been an unusual man. A website dedicated to him, set up by his great-granddaughter, says that he introduced Mother's Day to the UK in 1916. I haven't fact-checked this. He had lived in the US for some years, though, and I'm guessing he brought the custom back over here on his return. He founded an aviation company, worked on tunnelling through the Rocky Mountains, and seems to have been a restless man moving from one venture to the next. After a stint in Canada, Whitehead returned to England in the 1920s and in 1929 founded Copo. And it wasn't your average orchard. He had a unique vision and business model. He persuaded thousands of people to buy a fruit tree or multiple trees in his orchard. So the trees were all owned by separate individuals. It wasn't long until he had two million trees at his orchard. He employed ex-servicemen and others who, quote, would otherwise be idle, unquote, without this opportunity to tend to the trees. A fantastic brochure of the 1930s produced by Copo and shared with me by Potton History Society sells an idyllic rural enterprise giving work to those who need it, creating a sustainable agricultural model that would stop England's larder Local archives say that he was an enlightened and kind employer who paid good wages, encouraged trade union membership and tolerated the local youngsters who went scrumping in his orchards. His brochure sells what he calls the romance of Copo Limited and he says that 500 million pounds needs to be invested in British agriculture. His dream is to end what he sees as Britain's reliance on foreign apples and other products. A sentiment that just a few years later with the outbreak of World War II becomes a priority. And yet Hansard in 1942 records a debate in Parliament about Copo and its extensive land. It seems the apple tree owners are being asked for more and more money, whilst Whitehead isn't diversifying the land quickly enough to meet the growing need for homegrown crops that aren't apples. Bad harvests and poor weather made the situation worse, and although most of the apple tree owners and their association opposed it, a court rules in 1946 that copo should be sold to the cooperative. The co-op managed the orchards for the next few decades, though the number of trees shrink from two million to half of that. Other soft fruit is grown and local people have shared with me wonderful stories of fruit picking on long summer days in the 1950s and 60s, returning home with pocket money and faces smeared with fruit juice. One local person remembered visiting relatives up in Yorkshire and buying jam up there made from the fruit they'd picked at Cocaine Hatley. Apple picking too in the late summer and autumn was seasonal work many remembered fondly. The beauty of the blossom each spring and the fields of soft fruit through the summer was described as wonderful. But it seems the end came to the fruit production during the 1970s and 80s until it ended completely around the 1990s. And for the apples, I have found reports that say in 1974 the co-op took the decision to grub up and burn most of the apple trees at Cocaine Hatley Orchard. They blamed Britain joining the EU on this decision and an influx of cheap European apples. But it's clear that when Whitehead set up his orchard in 1929 he did so because he was concerned by the large number of foreign apples on sale in the UK back then. It seems a long-standing reliance on the larger, sweeter varieties of apples grown abroad was the issue here. Cox's Orange Pippin wasn't a fashionable apple in the 70s. Ironically, now Cox's Orange Pippin is more sought after and considered a classic English dessert apple, though its origins are in the 19th century. Its parent apples are most likely a Ribston Pippin, ironically grown from French apple pips in the 18th century, and one of England's oldest dessert apples, the Margill. But whatever reason for ending apple production, the consequence was still the same. Council archive reports say that one million trees were grubbed up and burnt at Cocaine Hatley in 1974. I was surprised that when I asked on local history and Facebook groups about the destruction of the orchards that many just simply didn't remember it. They knew it was a thing that happened, but it didn't leave a lasting mark in their memories. One person remembered that unlike the council reports, which imply the burning happened in 1974, it was a more drawn-out affair, where between 1974 and the early 80s, apple trees were dug up and burnt in stages. I think their account makes a lot more sense. I'm sure that a programme to dig up and burn a million trees would have left a mark in people's memories and would have been remarked upon in the local newspapers, and there is no mention of it. The co-op fruit farm is mentioned from time to time, mainly photos of smiling soft fruit pickers in the 70s and 80s. But there's no articles commenting on the destruction of one million trees and the enormous fire that would create. So I think it's safe to say that the co-op blamed joining the EU on winding down their apple production at the site. And over the following years, maybe decade, they dug up and burnt the trees to make way for different crops, including initially more soft fruit, but eventually moving to peas, beans and oilseed rape. The site is no longer run by the co-op, but a large agricultural company manages it now. When I read about the destruction of those apple trees and the burning of them, I did catch my breath. Partly because it seemed such a horrific thing to do, but also because the smoke I had smelt in the woods reminded me of that apple loft. Smell of apples, and in particular, applewood. Applewood smoke has a very particular scent to it. The romantic, imaginative side of me immediately felt like this must be the cause of the smoke being smelt in the woods, not the plane crash. I had the notion that these trees within the ancient forest, some of whom had stood there for hundreds of years, witnessed these young cousins of theirs first springing up on the hillside and then being grubbed up and burnt. They haven't forgotten the trees. The trees themselves are holding on to their memory of that destruction and somehow conveying it back to us. Yes, I know, I have absolutely no evidence for this and all scientific thinking shows that trees cannot communicate with humans in any way. And as I've already alluded to the Lord of the Rings in this episode, of course my imagination turns to Ents and forests with long memories of human or hobbit or elf or dwarf interactions. If this was a novel... I would make it that the trees remember that fire and they taunt the humans who walk amongst them with the burning smell as a warning and in grief. It would make a wonderful fable of the folly of humans, our destruction of the environment at the whim of what's going to make the most profit. This year it's Cox's Orange Pippin, next year it's French Golden Delicious. Three decades later, we want Cox's again, but too bad because those trees have gone. And we're left with crops that give little back to the environment in those fields because that's what makes the money. But maybe there is a scientific explanation that still links to the trees being burned and the continued scent of smoke in that area. It's a long shot, but Paul who you heard earlier sent me a link to an article about wildfires in Canada causing ground fires underground which can smolder and burn for years. You need dry conditions, soil rich with dead plant matter this isn't going to happen in poor sandy soils, and you also need pockets of oxygen below the surface caused by tree roots for example. These fires can burn quite deep and, as I've mentioned earlier, for years. They then also cause new wildfires to spring up and it's a cycle that just keeps repeating itself. I'll link to the article in the notes. Now, I have no idea if the conditions in Potton Wood could lend themselves to this kind of underground fire, but if they do, then it could be an explanation, or maybe something similar is happening. In a way, it is a natural explanation for what I metaphorically described. The land can keep hold of the fire, can keep replaying it underground, and on occasions it can spring back up to life. Obviously, from my experience on the day, the most logical explanation is that there was a fire burning nearby. But when you consider the repeated occurrence of smoke being smelt, and at all times of the day, night and the year, it does make you wonder if something else is going on there. Whether it's ghosts, time slips, the land and the trees themselves holding to the memory, or ground fires underneath the forest. The woods, the crash, The apple and fruit production are just fascinating stories to tell us about ourselves, our response to war, tragedy, recent politics, and how we treat the environment. But earlier I mentioned Luton Paranormal and their reports about Wood. On their website and in their archives, which they've kindly shared with me, there are a whole host of different experiences that they have reported whilst visiting Woods. It's a location that they like to return to, and they plan to go back there later this summer. So, if you're interested and you're local, check out Luton Paranormal's website and you can sign up, become a member, and go and spend the night in Potton Woods as well. Links to their website are in the notes. I asked Luton Paranormal a few questions about Potton Woods, and they explained that. Potton Woods is local to our group and we like to explore our local history in Bedfordshire and the three counties. There are a number of places where incidents like planes have come down in particular to the second world war. If we can uncover anything through our research, be it paranormal or historical, that could benefit the local community with further knowledge, then we will have achieved our goal. So it seems it was the history of the place which drew the group there to investigate rather than any existing reports of paranormal activity. Now I don't think they're aware of the 1953 flying saucer sighting there. They also admit that sometimes when they take a punt on a location like this they don't find any paranormal activity at all. But here's a very short summary of some of the activity Luton Paranormal have recorded on visits to Potton Woods. One visit They honestly report that there was no paranormal activity at the site, but they seemed to enjoy the walk and the history. Another time, in 2013, they took along a member who had no idea of what the history of the site was. Obviously, we must take their word for the fact, and that they knew nothing about the site, and I'm not here to judge the methods of Luton Paranormal, just look at what they reported. The person unaware of the history did suggest that it was linked to a fire, which is interesting, on the visit they also reported smells of smoke and the barking of a dog was heard in the woods. On a later visit in 2015 the group reported more activity including hearing old-fashioned music drifting through the woods and interestingly <coughs> someone could hear coughing. It did make me think of Paul hearing that polite cough. And Bear in mind all of these journeys to the woods and the investigations take place late at night when you're not going to have dog walkers they reported general feelings of unease or cold seem to be common but also the opposite feeling of suddenly being boiling hot on quite a cold night and on that 2015 visit someone reported seeing a dark figure walking between them and another group member which must have been unnerving but there are a few things reported which i think quite significant to the stories that i've told today and they are. There is a report by Luton Paranormal of blue lights or sparks being seen amongst the trees. As I said earlier, none of their extensive write-ups about the history of the site or their investigations mention the 1953 UFO sighting of the fierce blue craft. So we have two independent reports now of people seeing blue sparks or lights around Potton Wood. Next, on a summer visit to the wood, there are a lot of mention of fire breaks. So I'm wondering if this is an area that is prone to wildfires when we have hot dry summers and obviously these fires are becoming more common with the impact of climate change. But maybe this was a site historically associated with fires as well. Finally on one visit they stray further from the crash site and into the wood and they clearly reach that part of the wood with the ladder and the crossroads. A member of the party really doesn't like this area of the wood at all. They mentioned that they'd done some work beforehand trying to divine what might be going on in the wood. And they mention the Vikings, Viking raids or fights with Anglo-Saxons. It's an interesting angle, no pun intended, as we're on the borderland between East Anglia, Mercia and Essex. So my conclusion, after my investigation, I'm not sure I know what's haunting Potton Woods but what I do know is that there was a very tragic plane crash that happened there which must have deeply affected the families of the crew lost and of course the survivors of the accident. It also left its mark on the memory of the local community. There are reports of blue lights being seen in that area years apart and they don't seem to be linked to the crash. Now I definitely smelt burning in those woods and now I wonder if it's connected with wildfires or the burning of all those beautiful apple trees. But most of all, my visit to Potton Woods and learning about the site has left me with a much deeper appreciation of that tranquil corner of ancient forest on my doorstep. And I'll definitely be going back for another visit. So keep listening, and there will be an update on Potton Woods. But next time on Weird in the Wade. A cottage in Wrestlingworth, near Biggleswade, is plagued by the ghostly crying of a baby. But this isn't any old cottage. This was the home of Sarah Daisley, who was known in Victorian Britain as the Potten Poisoner. Find out about her life, the crimes she was executed for, and how Biggleswade and its surrounding villages responded to becoming notorious for one of Victorian Britain's most famous arsenic poisonings. Next time, on Weird in the Wade. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Weird in the Wade. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did making it. I'd like to say a really big thank you to Paul for taking the time to speak with me and for agreeing to be recorded for the pod He's an author whose books are described as overtures to nature, folklore, paganism and fairy tales in stories that explore the liminal edges of a wild wood or the urban cityscapes where monsters still lurk. Nothing is ever as it seems. You can find out more about Paul and his works on his website modquokka.com And there's a link in the show description and on the show blog. I'd also like to thank Luton Paranormal for answering my questions and sharing with me their resources. Again, there's links to Luton Paranormal's website in the show notes. Links to further reading and information used for this episode can be found on weirdinthewayed.blog along with photographs I took on my visit to Potten Woods back in April. As always, the show transcript is also on the blog too. You can follow the show on Twitter, well, for as long as Twitter continues to function, and on Instagram, we're at weird in the Wade, and of course via our blog. I know every podcast that you listen to says this, but if you can follow the podcast, rate it and review the podcast, it does make a huge difference, particularly in helping others find the show. Please do share the pod with your friends, family and social networks. Let's spread the weirdness. There's also a Weird in the Wade ko page where you can buy me a coffee. Currently I'm raising funds for better equipment to make field recording better quality so if you are able to support the podcast this way it does make a huge difference and thank you to those of you who have already donated. I really really cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. So again thank you so much for listening and for engaging with the Weird in the Wade on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, It really means a lot to me. This show was researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Our theme music is by Tess Savagir and other music and additional sound effects are from Epidemic Sound.